Um, today, I want to talk about power, um, and in particular, I want to talk about personal power, so not systemic power or organizational power. Now, some of you already have power, right? You, when you go to work tomorrow, right, when you walk in the room, people just get a bit nervous because they're not really sure why you're there and are you there to fire them. Um, Others of you have feel as if you have absolutely no power at all, but there will be a day in your life when you will all of a sudden wake up and realize, you will look around the room, and you will realize that you're the most powerful person in the room. And, and the question is, that moment you have that realization, the question that kind of drives this sermon is, in the moment that you have that realization, how will you exercise power? Because what you know is that there are few things in life that are more off-putting or that cause us more anger and frustration than the abuse of power. There's just something deep within inside of us that we know that the abuse of power is wrong. We know that power that is leveraged for the powerful is not the way the world is supposed to work. On the flip side, Few things are more inspiring than a leader that uses power for those they serve, that leverages their power and their influence and their privilege on behalf of those that has been, they have been entrusted to serve. And the thing is, the problem is, is until you are in the moment of power, until you wake up one day and you realize, holy crap, I am the most important person, the most powerful person, the person with the most influence in this room. Until you are faced with that moment, you are not sure how you will exercise power. I think this is one of the reasons that you see, um, this is one of the reasons you see uh, leaders go off the rails um, because they really haven't wrestled with the question before they step into that moment. It's not that they were a bad person, it's that the, they've never really wrestled with how they're going to go about exercising power in the moment that they have it. Which brings us back to the story of David. Now David, three years or two years, the text isn't quite clear, two to three years prior to the moment that he kills Goliath, David is hanging out tending sheep in a field a long ways away from his parents' home. And the prophet Samuel, the one who appointed King Saul or anointed King Saul to be king, and the one who will eventually appoint the next king, the prophet Samuel rolls up onto David's homestead. And he doesn't tell anyone why he's there. Right? This is one of those things when you go back and reread the text, you realize that he never actually tells anyone why he is there. We as the reader, we know because the narrator has told us why he's there. But he never actually tells David's family why he's on there, why he's gone to their property. He rolls up and he, and he says to Jesse, who's David's father, I want you and your sons to help me with a sacrifice. Now, what we know is that Samuel is looking for the person that God is going to anoint the next king of Israel because God has told Samuel, go to the household of Jesse, and when you arrive, you will find the next king of Israel. But this has got to be like a hush-hush secret mission because King Saul is a very jealous person, and he is... Um, he is not to be trifled with. One of the interesting things is the reason that, king, or that Samuel is going to anoint a new king is because King Saul has so gone off the rails already early in his reign, this is long before David ever takes over, that God says something, someone new has to assume the throne. So Samuel arrives on the property. They begin doing the sacrifice. 
And, and he begins looking around, looking at David's sons, trying to figure out who God wants him to anoint. And, and the problem is, is that when he looks at each of the sons, he's not getting that like sense from God. There are no warm tinglys telling him like, this is the person you should appoint. And so the text tells us this, when they arrived, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before the Lord. Surely this one, I mean, this dude, I mean, he is tall and he's smart. Like, he is the one that God wants to be the next king of Israel. I mean, he just looks the part. But then we read in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we could camp out in this verse all night. Um, I, I have all kinds of thoughts. Actually, my wife has all kinds of thoughts around dating and looking at outward appearance and learning to look past maybe that thing that at the beginning you think is a deal breaker, but actually this is someone you should want to date. She goes on speeches about this quite often. And, <laughs> and typically, this, this ends up with, she'll say, you know, like, they look nerdy, but really they could be changed. You know, give them a little different hairstyle, put a, a different clothes. Then she'll look at me and say, look at you. I mean, look how you turned out. (laughs) That is a true story. Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, and he is tending sheep. Yeah, there is one other, but he is 12 years old, and he is in a field a long ways away. Clearly, he's not the person you want. And Samuel said, for, said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And when David shows up, he smells like sheep. He is 12 years old. He looks like what a 12-year-old boy looks like. And in that moment, Samuel knows that this is the one that he should anoint. So verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Which just as a side note, I think it's really interesting that in verse 7, it says outward appearance doesn't matter. In verse 12, it tells us he's a good looking dude. Anyway, that's, that's not the point. Um, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, the question that the text doesn't answer, and the question that I have is, does David even know at age 12 what he's being appointed or being anointed to do? I don't think he does. Like, it doesn't seem that when he goes goes in with his care package that he takes to the front lines to help his brother, that he had an understanding that he would be the next king of Israel. But at some point on his journey, I think David has a realization that there is a calling, there is a vocation on his life. Even if he doesn't fully understand what that vocation or what that destiny is, God has something unique and something special for him to do. Eighteen months later or two years later, David kills Goliath. And overnight, he goes from being a nobody shepherd boy to one of the most important and popular people in all the kingdom. He marries the king's daughter. He is best friends with the king's son, who is the heir apparent to the throne. He is the most popular celebrity in the entire land. But even in spite of David's fame, um, there is a humility about him. He understands that he comes from no place and nowhere. Um, or nowhere and from nobody and from nowhere. Um, verse, 1 Samuel 18, 18, he says, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? 
So this is well after he has already been anointed to be the next king. This is after he's already become quite famous. This is after he's killed Goliath. There's just like, who am I to even marry into the king's family? Like there's a humility um, to David's life. What David knows is that whatever this calling is, whatever this vocation is, whatever the destiny that he has been given, it's not about him. It's about God's way and God's timing. And during the, the midst of all this, so after this period where David has this immense popularity and finds himself at the center of power, then for the next eight years, David is a fugitive running in the desert. And during, his period, and during the period where he is a fugitive running in the desert, he makes a number of bad choices. And one of the things I noticed is that David seems to grow in character during the time in the desert. There's a shift. You begin to see a maturity in who David is. The leader that we know David to become, who is this upright um, leader, who is like his leadership is the high point in Israel's history, that is only possible because of the period that he spends in the desert where his character is being shaped and formed. And this this evening what I want to do is I want to look at two stories I think that illustrate the way that David's um, character had grown. And then I want to look at a text from from the New Testament Um, And then I want to challenge us to think about how we exercise power. So um, the first story is is one of my favorites because it's the only time that it talks about using the restroom, one of the only times it talks about using the restroom in the Bible. Um, (coughs) King Saul... Um, has been traveling. So David, David, has, David has this merry band of men um, that kind of travel around with him everywhere, and they're kind of happy outlaws. Um, and they hear that King Saul is coming near, and so they hide in a cave, or maybe they just, like, that was their home base, was this particular cave. Well, King Saul and his army, his soldiers, come rolling up because they're searching for David, and David and his guys are like, hey, King Saul is coming. We should retreat into the cave. So they go deep into the cave. Well, the the, the thing of it is, is that King Saul has to do what every human has to do. Have you ever thought about this? This is, this is just a tangent, but like using the restroom is like one of the great equalizers, right? I don't care how powerful you are, you have to go to the restroom about the same way as everyone else. Um, so anyway, King Saul, because he's, he has to do what every person has to do, he's like, hey guys, I, I need to, to take a rest stop. And, and so he, he stops and goes into the cave and it's pitch black in the cave. Now, David's been in the cave, and David's eyes have adjusted so he can see King Saul. And in walks King Saul, and he's in the most vulnerable position he could possibly be in. And it's at this moment he's like, I can take him out, and he won't even know what hit him. In fact, David begins, in fact, David's men um, said this, um, 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Like, this is what you've been waiting for. God has sent this person in to use the restroom so you can take him out. And David's like, okay, we're going to do this. And he actually gets close, and he gets so close that he cuts off a portion of of Saul's garment, like his outer garment. He chops off a portion of it without Saul even knowing. And then he is just overcome with guilt. We read verse 5. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed one, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. 
It's really interesting. Like David is, has this idea, this understanding that he is not the king. There is an ultimate king and every, his power is, is bestowed. He's just stewarding power that has been bestowed by the ultimate king. And at this moment, the anointed king is Saul and he can't lay a hand on him, which is really interesting. But his men are like, dude, this is ridiculous. The throne is yours. Your destiny, your calling, your vocation. Like, you know that if you take out King Saul, you walk outside. You're the most popular military leader in all Israel. You walk outside. They will make you king today. And he says, I can't do it. Verse 12. Well, first, so he then, so David decides not to kill him. He tells his men why he's not going to kill him. And then Maybe there's just a bit of mischievousness in David because he then walks to the, once King Saul has left and has mounted his horse, he walks to the mouth of the cave and is like, oh, King Saul, yoo-hoo. And then he says, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. He's like, look, King Saul, you have wronged me. You have done wrong. You, you are not leading well. This is not my place to take you out. God will bring about God's purposes in God's timing and in God's will. And David made a decision somewhere along the way in that wilderness that he wasn't going to try to short-circuit God's plan anymore because what he realized is when he tried to leap ahead, when he tried to do it in his way, when he tried to short-circuit God's plans, People got killed. People died. There's another thing that I thought about, and this is just me personally thinking, like I'm not trying to extrapolate any great um, life lesson for the whole world to follow because this can go in some difficult directions or some more complicated directions. But one of the things I've thought about in my own life is that I've always been a very ambitious person um, and often thought that I could do things better than somebody else, right? This is why you start your own church, right? You, it, you, you should know, like, the people who start their own businesses and who start their own churches, there's something slightly off with inside of them. And typically, they think, like, they may have worked for somebody else, they may have done, and they're like, you know what? I am so tired of waiting around for somebody else to get it right. I'm just going to go and do it in a new and better way. And I think there's something to, uh, there's a generational, I, 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 there's a, just a general feel that I feel, particularly with the younger generation, um, that's that way. Everyone wants to run their own business. Everyone wants to work for themselves. Nobody wants to put in the time. No one wants to be underneath authority because often the authority figures seem to be getting it wrong. They don't understand technology. They move too slowly. They're too cautious. And we're like, we are tired of waiting around. I get it. But I sometimes wonder if, if, in our, if in our ambition and our speed um, to do things in a new and a better way, if sometimes we don't, we, there, there's, some, there's not something, if we don't lose something by failing to be under authority for a while and failing to learn from those who have gone before us and failing to learn from the wisdom of the past. And I just, like, that's something in my own life that I realized, like, I hated being under authority. And, there, and we, we, there's something we can be gained for spending time under someone else's authority. Now, there will be a time often when God will call us out to do something different. And it may be ten times better. And you may be right that you were way more capable than the person that you were serving under. But that doesn't mean there's not something for you to learn during that period in time. 
That's just free. That's not even related to the sermon today, but I thought about that as I was reading this story. So the second story related very similar to the first. David um, sends his men. He's got like a group of, he's got his own private CIA, his own spies, and he sends his spy network out, um, kind of keeping track of King Saul's movements. And the, the, they come back and they tell him, hey, King Saul is nearby, and he's set up camp. Saul and about 3,000 soldiers. Well, as nightfall comes, something comes over David, another like bout of mischievousness, and he turns to uh, someone who, one of his uh, right-hand people, a guy by the name of uh, Abishaiah, and he turns to him and he says, um, hey, I have a really bad idea. You in? And he's like, <laughs> always. 1 Samuel 26, verse 7. So David and Abishaiah went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner, who was, da- or who was King Saul's chief bodyguard, and the soldiers were lying around him. Saul is out like a log, and so is his chief bodyguard. And David and Abishaiah walk straight into the camp and walk up to King Saul. And there is his spear. It is just, it is so easy. Pick the spear up. One thrust, he's out. And Abishaiah once again says to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now maybe the time in the cave wasn't it, but this is it. David This is your rightful place. This man is making your life terrible. He is an unjust king. Short, Just get it done, and you will be the king of Israel. In fact, and then I think probably David's hesitant, so then Abishaiah says, now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. You can keep the blood off your hands. I won't even strike him twice. He won't know what hit him. He won't suffer. But David said to Abishaiah, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. David said, this is not my battle to fight. I am not going to short-circuit God's plans. I'm going to trust God to do God's plan and God's way. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David refused to replace what God had put in place. He said, look, I'm not going to get ahead of God's time. I'm going to trust that God is going to work things out. I've been, there's a calling on my life. There's an anointing on my life. There's a vocation that I know that I've been called to do, but I don't want to get ahead of God. There's tons more um, to the story. You should go and read it. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal story. Um, but skipping ahead, um, King Saul is eventually killed by the Philistines, and so is his son Jonathan. And, and it opens up the way for David to assume the throne. The problem was, is that once David goes to assume the throne, he becomes king of Judah. So there, in, in Israel, there are 12 tribes. Judah is the most prominent tribe, um, best that I can tell. Um, David becomes king of, of the, Judah. But the other 11 tribes actually allow King Saul's relative, a guy by the name of Ishbosheth, which is really hard to say, um, allows Ishbosheth to become the next king. Now, Ishbosheth is a terrible leader. He's not a great warrior. Like, he is easy to take out, right? Like, it's easy. David has, people want David to lead them. And once again, he says, no, 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 I, I'm not going to get ahead. 
So then a couple, this seven years goes by, and a couple of David's men decide, you know what, we're going to do David a solid, and we are going to go and kill Ishbosheth for him. He won't even know, we're not going to tell him ahead of time. It's like one of those things, like sometimes you want people to do something, you don't want to give them the head nod to do it, but you kind of are happy when it happens. Like that's kind of what they expected was going to happen, right? They thought David was going to get back, maybe it's like, oh guys, you shouldn't have, you know, wink, wink. <laughs> now, so they bring back the head of Ishbosheth. Just a, another side note, um, you can use this at your next dinner party, but the reason that there are so many beheadings in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, the reason there's so many beheadings is because they didn't have iPhones. And so you needed to prove that somebody was dead, and so in take, instead of taking their entire body and like drump, dropping on someone's doorstep, you just cut the head off because it was easier to transport. So that's why there's so many beheadings. So anyway, so they behead him, and they bring him back, and they bring it to David, and they're expecting David to like, you know, you shouldn't have, but, well, it's happened, so what are we going to do? So, but, but David answered Rekah and his brother Benah, and it said this, As surely as the Lord lives, who has de- delivered me out of every trouble. Guys, God has always delivered me. You didn't need to do this. God was going to work this out in God's way. Then verse 10, he said, When someone told me, and this is a weird passage, when someone told me that Saul is dead, so when he heard, when the news came that Saul had been killed by the Philistines, this is nothing anyone else has done. When, Saul, when someone told me that Saul is dead and they thought they were bringing me good news, I seized him and put him into death, or put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for his news. Which is one of those, which is one of those verses I was like, I may just skip this one. Um, <laughs> Just a, just a little, like, behind the curtain a little bit. Occasionally, if you'll be reading through, like, you'll go through. Sometimes we leave out ver- I leave out verses just because there's nothing relevant there, so we're working through a passage. Other times, you'll occasionally, like, see, we'll jump from verse 8 to verse 10. Chances are, if you go look up verse 9, there are, like, three names in that passage that are impossible to pronounce, and it's irrelevant material, so we just skip it. So, but this is one of the ones that's like, I just want to skip this, but it, 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 is, it is what it is. It's a weird time. So verse 11, so how much more then, if I killed this guy for doing nothing other than reporting the news, um, how much more when a wicked man have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed, should I not demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. And so David, even though um, this person was stood in his way. David honored Ishbosheth. David could have taken the kingdom by force. He could have had multiple times where he could have short circuited, but he said, No, no, no. God is going to do things in God's timing. The calling, the power that I will bestow upon me is not mine to take. It is being given to me, it is being entrusted with me as a steward. And you really see this growth in David's life. And so after um, he becomes king, we read in 2 Samuel 5, or as he's becoming king, 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 4, and all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and he said, we are, and they said, we are all your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Then, when all the elders of Israel came to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. 
covenants are essentially like a promise that you make to, to people. And, and David makes a covenant with his people about the type of king that he's going to be, how he will rule. But he makes that covenant, that promise, he makes it before the Lord because he understands that the authority and power that he has been entrusted with is not his. It, has been, it, has been, it is on loan to him. David realized that he was a king he was not the king. He, 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 David, even though he was the most powerful person in the room, the most powerful person in the land, in fact, he would go on to be the most memorable king in all of Israel's history, he realized that he was just a king, that there was a king that he reported to. And so verse 3, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. And there are two things I think that David learns in the period from when he is first anointed when he is 12 years old or 13 years old to when he becomes king. And that's first that leadership is stewardship. It's something that's been entrusted for you to steward well. And the second is that kings, even kings, are accountable. Even kings are accountable to someone else. Now what I think is so cool is this. A thousand years later, 20 miles north of Hebron, Jesus invites his disciples to share a meal with him on Passover night. On Passover evening, um, Jesus invites the disciples to an upper room, and, and then he begins to talk with them and begins to share with them. Now, this is one of the last meals, the last meal that Jesus will share with his disciples before he is killed. And I think one of the interesting things about Jesus' life and ministry is I think there is always a, um, Jesus understands his calling and his vocation, his destiny, but I think there were doubts in his mind about whether he got it right. Like, if, if the text is true, if we were to take the Bible seriously, and Jesus is 100% human, part of being human is even when you have an understanding, even when you have a calling on your life, there are moments in the darkness of night where you begin to question whether that's really what you've been called to do. But in this meal, I believe that Jesus not only comes fully to accept, accept his vocation, his calling, and his destiny, like this ends soon because this is what I've been called to do. But also in this meal, I think that his disciples are finally coming to grips with exactly how powerful Jesus is. In fact, not long before this, they were having a, a, an argument over who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. Right? Once you take power, or once you, like, you are the ruler, can we, like, can we be your right-hand person? But they finally come to realize that Jesus' mission is bigger and more bold than anything they could have imagined. And so we read this. Verse 13, or uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. And I think this is such an interesting um, line. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. There's this understanding, like, Jesus kind of has this realization, like, not only am I the most powerful person in the room, I'm the most powerful person in the world. Right? There's an, un like, the full weight of Jesus' power comes crushing in on him at this moment. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so Jesus has this incredible realization. Wow. And so what does he do? The exact next verse. So he got up. What do you do when you just realize that you are the most powerful person in the room? He got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped his towel around his waist. In that moment, his disciples realize what he is up to. And they're like, no, 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 no. You are not going to take the role of a servant. We have people to do this. It's just, it's just hit him like a ton of bricks, the power that he has. And the first thing he does is he puts a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The final image that Jesus leaves his disciples with is that of a servant. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be powerful in the coming kingdom, in God's future world, if you want to exercise power in my kingdom, it looks like this. And who do you think you are? You are under me. You will never be greater than me. And even I take the role of a servant. Even I use my power on behalf of others. Even I lower myself to serve others. And so my, my admonition this evening is this. In those moments when you think you are something, you finally got whatever the, the career highlight that you've been working for your entire life. I mean, for some of you, maybe it's like the corner office. For others of you, um, it's getting your name mentioned in the Washington Post on a regular basis, right? They're like, we talked to so-and-so, working for so-and-so, right? And you're like, oh, everyone's like, he's so important because he's getting quoted all the time or she's so important. Or, or maybe in this town, it's just getting your phone calls returned, right? Like that is the sign that you have reached it, right? You know that you finally reached the pinnacle of power because people get back to you. In that moment when you wake up and you realize, wow, I have made it. Like everything that I've worked for and I've strove, strived for my whole life, like I have made it. When you get that opportunity, when they set the crown on your head, in that moment, look for someone's feet to wash. Because that's what it means to lead like Jesus. That's what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Even when you are bestowed with power and privilege and authority and influence. And if we're just honest with ourselves, most of us will have some sphere of influence in our lives. When you realize the influence that you have, that means you need to serve others. In that moment, you need to look for someone's feet to wash. Because I believe that the greatest indicator of your spiritual maturity, one of the greatest indicators of your spiritual maturity, is how you will handle authority and power and influence. How you respond when it dawns on you that you are the most powerful person in the room says so much about your spiritual maturity. Because few things are as off-putting as a leader or a parent or a boss, or a politician, 
who leverage their power and authority for their own gain or who leverage their power and authority to get more power and authority because power begets power the more the the power when you have power it's easier to get more power but also few things are as inspiring as a leader who says to themselves i am going to use my influence my privilege my authority my power to serve others like i'm going to lower myself i'm going to humble myself there's nothing too big for me there's nothing too great for me or too small for me because the truth is whether we realize it or not many of us have already had that crown placed on our head it, it, it could be in your work it could be as a father or a mother a husband a wife a business owner a manager captain of a sports team right it, it can be a million things there's some sphere of influence you've been given in your life and we would do well to embrace the model that we see dimly in david right when we look at david we see glimpses of what great leadership look like looks like we see glimpses but then we fully see it revealed in the person of jesus jesus shows us what it looks like to steward power well and when you're the most powerful person in the room, leverage your power for the benefit of everyone else in that room. Jesus says it this way, or Mark, chapter, or Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says it this way, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. And so my challenge this evening is that moment in your life when you wake up and realize, I have a lot of influence, I have a lot of authority, I have power. In that moment, begin to ask yourself, whose feet can I wash? Who can I serve with what has been entrusted to me? And there's something so inspiring, particularly at this moment in time in our world where we are hungry to see good leadership. There's something so powerful about seeing someone steward their influence on behalf of others. And I think by doing that, we put Jesus on display. Let's pray.